Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this week's classic episode is from 2015. This is where, uh, Matt, this is where you and I are exploring what is sometimes called the Hermit Kingdom. And I was thinking back on this episode, and so very much has changed. We've been yeah. following North Korea for a while. Yeah, I... I I believe Kim Jong-un came into power several years before he made this episode, but not that long. He was still pretty early into his reign in the DPRK. And I recall just exploring a lot of that dynamic, the power dynamic, the family dynamic of the the dynasty there. And uh, man, there's a lot that I learned here, I would say from you, Ben. Uh, about the Hermit Kingdom in this episode. So I, I'm excited to re-listen. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, I am as well. Uh, just a caveat, a lot of things have changed again. So please, uh, if you'd like to learn more about North Korea, check out the other episodes we have done on the DPRK. But this is definitely the first. Seriously, this is where I learned Like everything I started learning about North Korea is because of this episode. From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome to the show. My name is Matt. And I'm Ben. And today, I think we should get started with a little anecdote that Ben has. Sure. Uh, all right. So, once upon a time, there was a man named Kinji Fujimoto. Kenji was a chef. Kenji was a sushi chef, to be uh, specific, and he was quite good at his job. But he was also a member of the Union of Sushi Chefs, and when he was a young, adventurous man, they made him a candidate for a mysterious job overseas. Now, the rules of the Union said that Kenji had to accept this job before he knew exactly what the assignment was. And that is how Kenji Fujimoto became the sushi chef for Kim Jong-il, the leader at the time of North Korea. Whoa. Oh, but wait. Kenji confirms so many of the stories that we are going to talk about today, especially regarding Kim Jong-il. Now, we don't want to spoil the surprise, but we will say uh, that he had a $700,000 a year cognac habit. Whoa. How do you consume that much cognac? 
I, you know what? I don't know. I assume it wasn't all him. It's for everybody that he's it, around. Yeah, this it's like ordering cheese dip for the table. Just you know? at all times. At all times, cognac. And let that serve as an introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in the right place, we hope. Here you are again with Matt, Ben, Super Producer Noel, the Madman Brown, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, Matt, finally, we're exploring North Korea. That's right. We're getting deep into the DPRK. I'm excited about this one, Ben. This is fascinating from so many angles, to me at least personally, and we Mm. certainly hope that you find it interesting as well. Uh, Let's get started with looking at some of the history in how North Korea was first formed. Because it's a fairly recently formed country, right? Oh, yeah. You only have to go back to 1945 at the close or just right at the close of World War II when Korea, the I guess the if you look at it as a large state together, mm-hmm. uh, the peninsula, it was divided up at the 38th parallel by the United States and the Soviet Union, two forces that were embattled mm-hmm. uh, in the on the Korean Peninsula. And it's called, I said the DPRK, you might not know this, you might already know this, but North Korea is officially called the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And uh, it was officially established on the 9th of September, 1948. And as students of history know, during World War II, the Allied parties were definitely not the friendly parties. It was more of an enemy of my enemy kind of deal. So there was already this tense situation between uh, the United States and the USSR about uh, which competing ideology would would rule the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unless, if if you uh, are familiar with uh, one of one of your um, favorite things, Matt, the Hegelian uh, dialect, yeah, right, uh, then then maybe that's a, a little bit of a false dichotomy. But that's a different show. Here's the point. The point is that tensions were high on the peninsula, and people knew on both sides that this would be a um, a flashpoint. And it mm-hmm. eventually escalated. It did. Uh, just a few years later, from 48 to 1950, it escalated into the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953. What kind of war was this? Well, I guess it was somewhat of a civil war between the two Koreas, because really they're, they would be one unified Korea. Homogenous but, population yes. and so on. Uh, but... We think, and I think history has shown, that it was much more of what we would call a proxy war between these two opposing sides. Now, we we have a video on this, but for people who haven't seen the video, what is a proxy war? It's when two, let's say, superpowers okay. have competing interests in one area, and rather than sending their army, at least as a whole, uh, or their military as a whole, to go fight there, they will use let's say the indigenous people of that area or groups that are closely related that you might be able to exert some control over mm-hmm. and have them fight that battle. And then maybe you can sprinkle in a little bit of a little bit of your military might as well. Uh, so similar, like kind of help them out. Similar to what's go uh, what's happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s, right? Very similar. Uh, which you can you can see more about, or you see it alluded to in that show, The Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, which, if you enjoy espionage, we recommend. Uh, in fact, the Korean War was the first armed conflict of the Cold War. Yeah, right? scary stuff. But what happened when the fighting ended? Because this is this is something that a lot of people don't know. There's a very important point here. Well, one of the biggest important points are the. Number of people killed. Over a million people were killed during this conflict. Not just soldiers, civilians as well. This was total so many war. civilians. And one of the biggest facts that will lead into reasoning behind a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is that almost every single large, especially important building in North Korea was completely destroyed, uh, specifically by. The U.S. Army. Right. The U.S. Air Force. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't say the Army. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's I completely mean, different it's thing. not like the Army wasn't there. <laughs> it's true, but yeah. 
So at, at the close of this war, after this, this massive toll in terms of property and human life, uh, the sides of the conflict created an armistice. And this armistice included a lot of things, but it was missing perhaps the most important. So, so what kind of stuff did this include? Well, you're looking at a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. You're looking at POWs, prisoners of war, going back to their side, um, repatriation. You're looking at the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. Ah, uh, yes. We'll talk about that a little later. You're also looking at basically when the fighting ended, there was no official final treaty that was signed. No, no formal peace agreement was ever uh, agreed upon. Yes, and that is the most important thing that was missing. Ladies and gentlemen, there is, technically speaking, uh, the equivalent of a ceasefire for uh, more than 50 years Mm -hmm. between North Korea and South Korea, between the DPRK and the ROK. Uh, the, The strange thing about this is that so much of what would be a formal peace agreement depends upon the idea of reunification of the peninsula, which is mm-hmm. something else we can talk about. But it's it's important to remember when you when you read this bellicose or warlike propaganda online, and I do recommend you visit North Korea's official news site if you're a fan of this sort of thing the way that I am. Um, what you have to remember is that this is the same level of wartime propaganda that you would see in the United States in World War II. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Buy war bonds or the Nazis will get you kind uh. of stuff. Um, so it's not, it's not as crazy as it might sound from the outside. And for the interim, for a little while after the formation here, uh, there were tough times, but uh, DPRK at times – was uh, more successful in some ways than uh, South Korea, the Republic of Korea. Uh, and it was all under its leader who built a cult of personality. Yes, a cult of personality is very important in this story as well. Um, should we go into a little bit about just the uh, the view, top-down view of North Korea again, looking at maybe population? Sure, North Korea today. So the population is estimated at 24 million, 24.9 million. Yeah, a little under 25 million. You'll see estimates fluctuate. Yeah. And it's, that's, you know, a lot of people, especially if you think that the entire area is listed as 46,528 square miles, which is about the size of Pennsylvania. Right, yeah, and just for comparison, South Korea is uh, has a population of around 48 million, I want to say. So uh, North Korea is the less populous of the two. Um, but of the, let's go ahead and say, of the 24 to 25 million people living in North Korea, uh, there uh, there's a certain population that we particularly want to talk about and highlight in today's show, and that is the... Um, that is the group of an estimated 200,000 people, uh, as as we record this, mm-hmm. that are in labor camps. Yes. Kwan Lee So is what this uh, system of camps is called. Could you tell us a little more about it? Well, it's, it's really interesting stuff. You get into – you get placed in one of these mm-hmm. in a couple of different ways. Uh, usually it has to do with whether or not you are – seen as loyal to the party, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not just you. It might be that your grandfather wasn't loyal to the party, mm-hmm. or maybe even your granddaughter or grandson isn't loyal to the party, and you might find yourself in one of these labor camps. So you've got – it's this really interesting thing that you're, you go over really well in the video that's, that came out this week about – uh, five things they don't want you to, or five things you might not know about North Korea. Mm, mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, the reason this is so interesting to me is that I've never heard of this before. I've never heard mm-hmm. of this happening. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned to me earlier that their Confucianism might play a part in the reasoning behind this process. Yes. Uh, Confucianism does play a part to some degree. What, what we're talking about here is the idea of intergenerational punishment. So this could mean that 
you are in a labor camp not only for a crime that you yourself did not commit, but maybe a crime that you are not aware of one of your relatives committing. And a crime here is not necessarily, you know, crime like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Or in the eye of the judicial system, right? Uh, So what we find here is that there are three generations of punishment. Collective punishment is practiced unto three generations, which sounds almost biblical, yeah. Uh, So you're to take, um, to dovetail off your early example, Matt, this Mm -hmm. means that maybe your grandfather um, committed a crime or was against party ideology and you came from a good family. Family is very, very important in this society. This means that um, your parents and you are going to feel the consequences of that. This can be something where you're just in a slightly lower class mm-hmm. for a while, or this could be something where you are born in a labor camp with no idea not even of the world outside of North Korea, but no idea of the world outside the labor camp or understanding of why you are there in the beginning. Uh, it is just a torturous, horrible, um, it, it's an atrocity. Is and for, the word. And, yeah, and exactly. And from what I've gathered, you will live your entire life there and possibly even have to have children and then they live their entire lives there. and And that's it. Then, mm-hmm. then you're done. Now, uh, it's important to say that the, to give a picture of these labor camps, uh, a lot of this is is uh, very hard manual labor, of mm-hmm. course. Um, children, too. Right. Children, too. Uh, punishments are harsh. Uh, food is very scarce. And when I say harsh punishments, I mean up to and including arbitrary torture. Um, this this is a family show, so we won't go too much into this, but uh, there are instances, you know, of beating to death, of forced abortions, uh, exposure to the elements, um, being forced to eat feces, and uh, the list goes on. Uh, so what what we're saying here is that there is a segment of this population that due to collective punishment exists under um under these terrible circumstances uh and it makes you wonder which is a question we'll get at later toward the end of this it makes you wonder uh how much of this is propaganda from defectors because mm-hmm. again it's hard to learn about a lot of this stuff we and have- a lot of it comes as anecdotal evidence from people who perhaps escaped Right. And we see satellite imagery, but mm-hmm. it's not as if, you know, Vice did a documentary on North Korea, but it's not as if they made it to a labor camp uh, that was Precisely. up there. Although they did make it to that place in Russia. Uh, so b- before we get sidelined too much here, one of the questions would be, well, why is this government being supported? Right. Sure. Because historically it was supported. Its primary benefactor was the USSR. Uh, but. That no longer exists. That's a problem. And uh, relationships with Russia have have cooled a lot. So who is the main benefactor of North Korea now? Well, currently it's China, but it's not exactly an ideal partnership. So like their Facebook status would be it's complicated. Sure. That's exactly right. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing to note here is that the DPRK does have some sort of nuclear weaponry. Uh, They've got, I think, an estimated two warheads, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's really no reliable delivery system, like uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are Mm -hmm. just ready to go. And especially if you only got two warheads, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it would be a short-lived big bang attack kind of but thing. But they're, yeah, but they're, they're, it is still dangerous. Right. And they're working on, um, having this ballistic capability and actively working toward nuclear weaponry, um, as opposed to, uh, a country like Iran, which according to numerous intelligence agencies recently isn't. Exactly. Uh, but coming out of, Af- uh, what, where did it come out of South Africa? Yeah, it came out of these, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Matt and I are talking about uh, some recent leaks before we went to air this week uh, from the South African intelligence agencies that revealed, oh, so much stuff. Let's just talk about yeah. it real quick. Let's just laundry list some stuff. Well, I've, okay. Um, a lot of it that I read specifically had to do with Iran mm-hmm. um, and just the lines that we've been getting from certain countries, including our own, just that are complete. Yes. Right. Especially uh, the prime minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, saying that, you know, it's something we've talked about before. Iran is always in some weird, according to its opponents, Iran is always in some weird Alice in Wonderland state, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, bombs yesterday, bombs tomorrow, but never, ever bombs today. And they're always a year away or 10, like five years away Mm -hmm. or whatever. And it turns out that the, um, that Mossad, the Israeli equivalent of the CIA, I guess, uh, said that, uh, Iran's definitely is not doing it. And yeah, just heads down. We're not worried. And, this, I mean, it's kind of messed up, but I would definitely trust the Mossad's word uh, if it's if it is in this context mm-hmm. in something that is being leaked. Yeah, we also found uh, some other stuff there. Let's see, uh, Korean stuff specifically, like South Korea targeting the president of Greenpeace. Okay, uh, Greenpeace yeah. officials for monitoring and MI6, which is uh, the UK intelligence agency. Uh, Attempting to uh, create to get a spy in North Korea. I thought that was great. Yeah, that's that's a tough order, man. That's <laughs> a tall order, and that's because um, we can recap some of our earlier stuff here. That's because uh, North Korea is very much a closed society. It's a homogenous, largely homogenous society. Because um, North Korea has a class system, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail, but. 
if we're talking about this, let's go ahead and start at the very top of the social hierarchy of the DPRK, and that is the Kim Dynasty. That's right. You gotta start with the OG Kim Il Sung, uh, the father of Kim Jong Il, mm-hmm. and then in turn the grandfather of Kim Jong Un, the current leader. Yes, uh, Kim Il Sung is the is a godlike figure. Uh, Kim Il Sung is the eternal leader of North Korea, which means that technically speaking, he is considered still. The mm-hmm. leader of North Korea, despite his death. There's your three-generational rule there. Ah, yes. And it's interesting that you say that. We'll we'll see how that shakes out later. Uh, yes, uh, Kim Il-sung is referred to as uh, the great leader, the country's eternal president. Uh, his birthday is a holiday. It's called the Day of the Sun. Uh, he ruled North Korea uh, for 46 years, from 1948 until he passed away in 1994. Um, during the time leading up to his passing away, his son, Kim Jong-il, who most of us will probably remember better, uh, he took leadership, and it was during his rule that the country encountered some of those very Tense, difficult times, including uh, the famine known as the arduous march mm-hmm. and nuclear standoffs. Uh, but we have a new leader now, and that is uh, one of his sons, right? Yeah, Kim Jong Un. He was selected by Kim Jong Il over his other two brothers. That's, yeah. I mean, hey, props, man. Right? Yeah he he is interesting because he has a um, he has a European schooling. So he is someone who has been raised outside of the country. And I believe he went to school in Switzerland. Now, he is not necessarily the, um, he, he is not necessarily the heir apparent in the way you would think these things would normally go. He's not no. the eldest son. No, there, there were issues, let's say, with two of the other candidates that would have been before him. Right, yeah. So there are two other candidates. There was Kim Jong-nam and Kim Jong-chul. And I'm mispronouncing. I apologize. I don't speak uh, Korean very well. But the... uh, The brothers were... The brothers who didn't make it um, were passed over because one of them was caught trying to go to... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I Tokyo that. Disneyland in 2001, and that was a huge embarrassment. One of the others was seen as uh, effeminate by mm-hmm. their father. Uh, so here we are with uh, Kim Jong-un as uh, the leader of the DPRK, or at least the face of it. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's the important thing, right? Despite the appearance of an absolute monarchy, right, uh, the private version seems a little bit different. There are a lot of high-ranking senior officials that um, date back or did date back all the way to the days of Kim Il-sung. And seniority being so important in this society, their words carry weight. Oh, yeah. And it's I feel like the system is kind of similar to the high advisors that, let's say, the president listens to on a daily basis to make mm-hmm. high-level decisions. Even if they're repeatedly wrong. Oh, yeah. But it's, you know... You ha- you kind of have to go with the person that probably knows best, right? Yeah, uh, and uh, another another weird thing here. Uh, so the stated aim of North Korea is reunification. It's something that both Koreas want in principle, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the problem there is that the the problem there is that the there's uh, just a battle of population that occurs um, because both. Both want the peninsula reunified in some manner or way because there were families that were split apart by mm-hmm. this division, this 38th parallel division. Um, but, you know, both countries want to be in the driver's seat. Right. And, and then when you look at the population, you you mentioned that the Republic of Korea has almost twice as many, almost twice mm-hmm. as many people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would seem as though if you were just looking from that aspect alone, you, they would kind of absorb North Korea, or at least that's the way it seems. And I'm pretty certain 
North Korea wouldn't want that. Right. Uh, we we are going to look at some of the questions about that too toward toward the end mm-hmm. here. Now, Matt, you watched the interview, right? I did. Yeah, I watched the interview too. It wasn't it wasn't my favorite thing. I felt like, you know, what's what's the point where uh, satire just becomes kind of racism? Yeah. But I I'm a big fan of Seth Rogen and uh, James Franco. I think they're funny guys. Um, the guy who played Kim Jong Un is is a really funny dude Mm -hmm. uh but you know you have to wonder how much of that is again like propaganda but there was a great point in interview uh where they say that there is a false impression that this nation strives to give visitors and the outside world oh yeah the i'm thinking of the scene in particular where james franco's character goes and finds that little food store Uh uh-huh and it's just all fake food um it's all props essentially set up for him and other outsiders to think that there's plentiful food in the area. Yeah, there's a great uh Reddit AMA from a North uh from a photographer who was traveling to North Korea pretty often mm-hmm. until he started being refused entry for taking photos he shouldn't take. Mm. And uh he said that uh, there are a few, there's like two supermarkets in Pyongyang or something, but the only people who can really, uh, shop at those are the elite. Um, we know that there is propaganda at work in North Korea and, you know, it's, it's its own industry as well. Uh, so it's difficult to understand how much of what the government says is true, how to parse the truth between the statements. But there's another point. This makes us think of. Well, yeah, it's not just propaganda coming out of North Korea about how great it is. There's also a ton of propaganda aimed at you about how bad North Korea is and all these terrible things and how everyone there is starving. Though there is some truth to it, it, a lot of this stuff are just exaggerations to kind of shape your view of the country as a whole. Right. There's a a lot of an echo chamber going on, uh, and nowhere was this more apparent than uh, in the uh, recent interview-related news story from North Korea, right? Yeah, it was was absolutely North Korea doing these cyber attacks against Sony. We're not saying it wasn't, but we are saying uh, that's a heck of a leap to make. And there were credible, very credible people saying that it absolutely wasn't North Korea. So, you know, you Mm -hmm. you just... I just have to open open your third eye, maybe. I don't know. I can't. I don't know how you figure out what's true or not these days. So we do know that. With that being said, with that wheelbarrow of salt poured onto the <laughs> idea of uh, all these stories you hear from North Korea and about North Korea, we do know that some of the crazier stories are true because, as we said at the top, we have our friend Kenji Fujimoto, who was able to confirm some, and then we have some uh, some good firsthand reports here. So what's, what's one crazy story? All right, well, you are going to have to elaborate on this one for me, but I remember hearing a story about a rabbit breeding program that didn't go very well, or they're very, it's a very large species of rabbit, Mm-hmm. That yeah. I I guess North Korea wanted to have a small population of them in order to breed them. Yes, yeah, it's true. Uh, so in in uh, I guess 2007 or so, twelve giant rabbits were delivered to North Korea. Uh, the breeder who sent them uh, found he thought they were going to be used to make a rabbit farm, uh, but he suspected that they were eaten by the top officials. Um, Berlin's North Korean embassy denied the allegations, but you can read some more about this in Spiegel, um, the online, the uh, the German uh, journalism. Uh, this is an article by David Crossland, and these rabbits guys are so big; they're biggest <laughs> dogs. They make about eight kilos of of meat. Um, that's a, yeah, that's huge. But it may have been. I was thinking about this. It may have been, despite the food shortage, that they tried the rabbits because you should try before you like do this whole thing you want to start a rabbit industry if nobody wants them nobody wants them but maybe they ate them and they didn't taste good that's that's another i I could see that i could see that um but there are other crazy stories as well 
Another story is that there is a difference in size between North and South Korean nationals, and it's thought to be due to, to malnutrition that North Koreans were subjected to. Yeah, you hear this a lot from, uh, especially from Americans. So, uh, former presidential candidate John McCain talked about it in a 2008 debate. Uh, Christopher Hitchens talked about it in an article in, uh, Slate. Uh, but some actual research instead of just rhetoric mm-hmm. came from a guy named Professor Daniel, uh, Schweckendijk. Uh, from a university in Seoul, he said that on average, North Korean men are about one and a half to three inches shorter than uh, men in South Korea. And the interesting thing is that due to the homogenous nature of the population, like genetically, mm-hmm. right, uh, we know that this doesn't come from a large variation or diversity in the gene pool. It comes from environmental factors like nutrition. Wow. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But that brings us to something else. All right, Matt. This is one of the craziest stories. Uh, Starvation. Yes, Ben. Starvation and food insecurity in general is a huge issue in North Korea. Um, It's a life-threatening issue that, I mean, this is one of the big worries in your life uh, if you're a North Korean. And... Like we can look at one of these things like during the famine of ni- the 1990s. Mm-hmm. That's the thing you mentioned earlier, the arduous march. Mm-hmm. Somewhere, and this is a huge, huge variance in number here, but somewhere between 240,000 and 3.5 million North Koreans died of starvation or some form of hunger-related issue. 
Right. Yeah. So maybe not just starvation directly, but something exacerbated by starvation. Uh, this, yeah, this number is, uh, it's a huge number. It's a huge variance, as we said. But first, uh, in a country that does keep adequate records or does allow people in more easily, the, uh, you still have a variance. You still have a variance because it's difficult to say the exact cause of death, right? Mm-hmm. But then in countries, uh, but in the case of North Korea, this is even more difficult because there are very few official numbers kept, and that's been the case for f- 50 years. Yeah. This leads us to something darker, though. Yep, cannibalism. So... There is confirmation of, let's say, isolated cases of why, and you know, there are also a lot of rumors about cannibalism. Right. So some of these isolated cases would be stuff like a grandfather digging up his children's graves after they passed away and eating them. Yeah, because he had to, is the idea. Uh, But there are also these rumors of large-scale cannibalism that took place during certain times in North Korea. Um but yeah. really, we we don't know. We can't prove it. Right, because these statements come down often through defectors, right, mm-hmm. through the eye of defectors. And uh, I'd like to take just a moment to trace the path the defector goes to. Oh, yeah, please. So if you, if you make it to South Korea, from North Korea, then you are going to be accepted into South Korean society. They have subsidies set up. They have some orientation uh, programs, right? Wow, yeah. And that's very important because there are a lot of uh, things that are going to be so unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. But to get to South Korea is the difficult part. It's sort of like how um, in the United States, if you are from Cuba and you manage to make it to the mainland, Mm -hmm. right, then you are allowed to stay. Yeah. But uh, you have to make it through that 90 miles of water first. And if you get caught before then, you're fair game and people will turn you back. So if you leave North Korea, you um, – and typically what we see are often with the assistance of Christian groups or uh, bribing guards, uh, people go over to China. They go over to the border and cross the river, the – the uh, entrance straight into South Korea via the DMZ is just not going to happen. Yeah. It's it's um it's far too armed to the teeth on both sides. But if you go to China and China finds you, you will be deported back to North Korea where you will almost certainly be sent to a labor camp. Um, and if you leave and it's proven that you have left, then it could also potentially punish three generations of your family. Yeah. So of the people who travel, many travel, you know, directly to China and uh, 75% of the women who travel there are trafficked uh, or enforced marriages. And uh, the people who do make it, China considers these people economic migrants, not refugees. The legal distinction sounds, um, you know, sounds like semantics to us, mm-hmm. but it's uh, a lot. People's lives hinge on this. And their mission is to make it to an embassy where they're safe. You can go on to YouTube right now uh, and just search for uh, North Korean refugees, China, an embassy, and you will see heartbreaking footage of groups of people making it Chinese guards outside, not getting all of them, but stopping some. And that's where it ends. The embassy cannot do anything for you if you are right outside the door. Jeez. So when these, when these people, um, when these defectors pass through, if they make it via, you know, like Thailand, China, Mongolia, and in, in China, again, a lot of the assistance of Christian groups, if they make it there, they often talk about their experiences mm-hmm. in uh, North Korea. And we have to have some deal of skepticism because it's true that a lot of people are saying the same thing. But uh, what is the evidence other than that hearsay? Is it possible that um, – you know, factions of the South Korean government or even the U.S. government are encouraging this kind of like encouraging the, a, a rhetoric of some sort mm-hmm. um, or 
is this just the truth? Are these people participating in starvation cannibalism? <sighs> that is a heavy one, Ben. Yeah, sorry, that was a monologue. Well, it's all good. How- okay, I-, I have a question that maybe our listeners would like to ask you. Okay. How how did you learn so much about this subject? Oh, I don't I don't know. Uh, I appreciate the flattery, but uh, I don't know very much about North Korea at all compared to a lot of people. This is just something that uh, has, has fascinated me for a long time. You know, my background is in international affairs and always seemed uh, enigmatic and full of questions to me, implied questions. Why aren't world powers doing more for, yeah. to, to help if this if this is such an important thing and um, how did this unique government begin you know oh yeah sure well it seems like you're absolutely right it seems like one of those things that once you learn about it that why if anybody knows about it why isn't there more being done to change the situation no what what about the uh, what about the next thing here this is a weird story what about the crime? Oh, little crime, little crime action. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if any of you are watching Better Call Saul, but you probably should be if you are not. Uh, North Korea, it turns out, is pretty good at making meth. At least certain factions, certain groups are mm-hmm. really good at it. Um, <laughs> they officially, yeah, yeah, they officially deny it. Uh, however, during the 90s, the government had this unit called Office 39, and it was uh, tasked to raise hard currency for Kim Jong-il, mm-hmm. and they produced not just meth, mm-hmm. but also opium, that thing that we've talked about pretty extensively on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, these are two things that seem to be able to, if you're able to produce them, generate a large flow of cash. Mm-hmm. And what's what's also interesting here is, uh, despite these official denials in 2010, I believe, uh, South Korea's uh, Donga Ilbo claimed that Chinese police had seized $60 million worth of drugs made by the DPRK. Jeez. So uh, maybe this idea of not making meth is a myth, which brings us to <laughs> myths about North Korea. Uh, you've got you've got a big one for us, right, Matt? Well, the first thing that you might not know is that the citizenry as a whole, or at least large chunks of the citizenry in the DPRK, are not as uninformed as some people would want you to think. Uh, there are there's a whole black market of phones and other telecommun- telecommunication. Devices, internet connections, um, all kinds of smuggled media gets in. Mm-hmm. South Korean uh, soap operas are pretty popular. Well, that's good. Uh, well, the the uh, interesting thing here is, you know, people are so often uh, taught or were historically taught in North Korea that uh, they were living in the best possible situation in the world and that people in South Korea – didn't have food or shoes or places to sleep. Uh, and now this is, this has become apparent. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Another myth. Um, well, I think it is a myth. And I know some people might not agree here. Another myth is that, uh, North Korea itself is a communist country, that the DPRK is a communist country. Well, I, th- I thought it was, Ben. Well, uh, so did I, Matt, for, for a long time. This brings us to a book, a, a quite a good book, a controversial book called The Cleanest Race or How North Koreans See Themselves and Why It Matters. Uh, it's by an author named Brian Reynolds Myers. And in this book, Myers contends that uh, far from being a communist state, the way that the West would understand it or the way that a communist would understand mm-hmm. it, uh, the North Korean uh, society is much more nationalistic and based on this idea of racial purity, the concept being that uh, the people of this country are so pure and virtuous that they must be protected uh, from the barbaric outside world by this this caring, uh, omnipotent benefactor. Is it bad that I'm seeing parallels there between being protected by terror, protected from terrorism and American exceptionalism? I don't know. That's a very interesting parallel to draw. Maybe uh, listeners, let us know what you think with that parallel there, because 
I'm uh, this, sorry. <laughs> this is the most. Hey, this is the most interesting parallel in this show. Uh, now it beats the 38th parallel to us by <laughs> oh. a bit. So we talked a little bit about. Um, you know, this, okay, if this communism stuff is a myth, right? Mm -hmm. If in practice there are wild inequalities in North Korean society, uh, then why? What, what system in place does this? It's the Songbun system, and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's the caste system that exists mm -hmm. in North Korea. Yep. And, uh, there, there are like three grades, right? Yeah. Three tiers. You've got the, Loyal, which is also called core, or I think it's called core, but loyal, the loyal core. Then you've also got wavering, which are people that are kind of your ifs, your maybes. Your, these people are on a list, but they're not necessarily a danger yet. Uh huh. Then you've got your hostiles. Ah, uh, yes. This is, this system is uh, based upon uh, the position of one's family pre-liberation mm -hmm. of the peninsula. Uh, so the hostile and wavering class makes up about 72% of the population. And there are gradients of mm -hmm. this, um, I think more than 30 kind of gradients. Uh, one thing we should point out here is that this most definitely affects your chances at everything. The town in which yep. you are assigned to live, right? The job you are allowed to have, how far you are allowed to advance at school. Because if you are um, in the wrong class, no matter how well if you're in a hostile class you probably don't get to go to mm -hmm. school you're in a labor camp somewhere but if you were in a wavering class no matter how you study you will not get the academic accolades that the uh that the top tier mm -hmm. classes get another myth about uh north korea that it is a failed state it is not actually no things yeah. are better at least a lot better than they were in the 90s for sure mm -hmm. that's when you had the starvation um, just it wasn't looking good around that time. So things are improving, and there are a lot of things that are improving, right? Uh, yeah, there are. Um, in terms of access to food, mm -hmm. things are improving. There was a uh, huge revaluation of the. Okay, this is this is kind of complex, but there was this huge revalu revaluation of the currency when the black market became too successful, and people were relying less on the uh the Kim dynasty mm -hmm. uh so people lost their savings totally and have been recovering from that but the the black or gray market has to be permitted to a certain amount uh to a certain amount so that might be one reason why people say it's a failed state but a failed state is something like Somalia when when yeah. the president that the UN recognizes barely controls part of the capital you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the government of North Korea definitely still is in control of the country, and that might be that might be a good thing, as we'll see. Uh, it's also not as isolated as you might believe. Uh, we've got a great quote here uh, from the Atlantic that we'll just read a little part of. The United States may have very little to do with the North, North Korea, but that does not apply to the rest of the world. Did you know that North Korea sends hundreds of students overseas for educational and business training? Thousands of North Koreans work in China and Mongolia, where they produce goods for popular British clothing brands, in Kuwait, where they work on construction projects, and in Russia, where they labor in logging camps. Uh, he also says that there's a North Korean construction company that's working, uh, completing a museum near Cambodia's famed Angkor temples, which is a whole nother awesome place. Yeah, there's also a uh, IT sector that mm -hmm. is becoming an outsourcing destination. Uh, they've got a pretty advanced animation industry. So this this is all to say that this is not really a. Um, this is not some place that is completely cut off from the world, which is something that people are often taught in the United States. And this, all these myths, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, Matt, let's get to the good stuff. Are there any conspiracies about North Korea? Oh, yes, Ben. There are a lot of conspiracies that deal with the DPRK. Uh, one of the big ones is that inside the country in North Korea... Americans are blamed for everything. Oh, so like a power failure? Oh, yeah, power failure. Uh, you spilled your tea. Americans. 
it was the Americans. Obama. I, I think it would be really funny if there were just whole families in North Korea that just scream Obama the way uh, certain people in the South do when anything happens. Well, certain people across the world. Okay, sure. I'm, I'm, I, sure, I'm like, saying that out of personal experience. Okay, I'm, but I'm sure there are German officials who say Obama. <laughs> I know there's at least one guy in Russia who's probably saying that a lot. Sure. Yeah, I think we know who. But the um, but where does this where does this idea come from? This idea that uh, the U.S. forces are continually oppressing. Uh, North Korea. Well, we do know that a lot of it is based on the factual events of the Korean War mm-hmm. um, when the Americans were doing a lot of uh, uh, I mean, it was total warfare. So a lot of civilian soldiers died and the country was raised. Uh, the buildings were knocked down. And not only that, the sanctions that are placed on North Korea. Yeah, but those sanctions primarily just affect the elite. It's not as if um People in rural farming or mining towns are saying, oh, man, we can't get cigars anymore. And the elite are people, too. And they need their cognac and their, you know, cigars. You're right. I am being I'm I'm being rude to the elite. Uh, So there's this other there's this other theory here um, that if you believe in new world order theories, you may also believe in this, that like Libya and Iran, North Korea is on the global um Let's call it the stuff list because <laughs> it refuses to play games with the it refuses to play ball rather with the global financial regime, IMF, World Bank, Goldman Sachs. I don't know, man. This this one feels very real to me. The so-called non-aligned countries. There's another there's another one that comes from a guy you might remember from earlier episodes we had. Yeah, Benjamin Fulford. We we mentioned him. I think when we were. What was it? We were doing the Dragon Family episode. We looked at his research a lot. Uh, he believes that DPRK and Japan are working closely together. And he's basing this on Kim Jong-un's Japanese mother. That's, uh, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And also the large population of North Korean descendants uh, who reside in Japan. Yeah. Benjamin Fulford, you can, uh, you can check out his, some of his work online if you like. I would say that, uh, I, I would say that while the stories are interesting, they are allegations. Yes. They are not proven facts, which is, uh, something you should check out. But the Dragon Family episode that we did is, is just fascinating. Um, the, that's the one about the huge amounts of it wasn't money it was bonds mhm yeah certificates yeah and uh and there's some interesting they they interesting is a word that I'm o- overusing in this podcast uh so i would say that there's some um tantalizing stuff to go along with that around the same time of uh two japanese nationals caught uh smuggling a large amount of bills in a in a train, uh, supposed hidden treasure or recovered treasure in the Philippines, uh, dating back to World Wars. The Dragon family is this sort of um, Asiatic ruling force similar to the Western concept of the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. And this is about his thing is about these two groups in conflict. Um, but do check it out if you get a chance. Another big conspiracy, North Korea as a world ending threat. Uh, not as much as a way in the way that you think. Now, North Korea is most dangerous to South Korea because it is so close to the capital city, Seoul. It also has a million strong army. It would be able to do some devastating, horrible damage to, uh, South Korea, but it would by no means win the war. It doesn't have, uh, the firepower to, um, it is not a world threat other than the idea that destabilization um, or an attack on North Korea could set off a domino um, effect of some sort. And it, we said earlier that there are an estimated two nuclear warheads inside the country in North Korea. So I guess they are considered a nuclear power because they have these two. It's The threat is much smaller than a lot of places, though you can't underestimate a nuke no matter what the size. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't have a lot of missiles. You you were telling me about the newest missile, the uh, I don't know how to say, the UHA? 
Unha two, yeah, U N H A. Uh, this technically is not a missile; it's a space launch vehicle. I hope you guys can okay. hear my air quotes around <laughs> that. Uh, and it did put a satellite in orbit. Uh, currently, the uh, U.S. sources estimate that uh, North Korea has deployed around 600 Scud missile variants, 200 Rodong missiles, uh, fewer than 50 Musudan or Taipodong. Um, but South Korean sources estimate even fewer, so this varies. So here's the big question that we have today. What is the future of North Korea? Can we, can we see any, like, what is the outcome here? Mm-hmm. Well, to answer that, we'd also be answering this, another question, which we'll, we'll answer in full in an upcoming episode too. Uh, the future of North Korea is difficult to, determined because it is caught between global powers, the United States, China, Japan, Russia to a lesser degree. A lot of misinformation and disinformation is spread about the country and its inner politics are incredibly secretive. But those human rights abuses are real to some degree. Oh, absolutely. And if, you know, if we're so going ho about freedom and human rights in America, then why the heck... Haven't we done anything about this? We are the largest superpower and military might in the world. Uh, furthermore, if China has such influence over DPRK, then why hasn't it done more to improve the um, the economic situation, if not the human rights situation? Well, there's a simple answer. There's not a compelling reason to change the status quo right now in that region. Absolutely. Uh, imagine if, uh, imagine if you can, the situation when the wall fell in e- between East Germany and West Germany. This would be that, uh, in a much larger mm-hmm. circumstance. A massive flood of refugees would, f- uh, would move into South Korea and China immediately in excess of 20 million people. Uh, and, and, and who knows which way the power shifts if that wall comes down? Is it the Republic of Korea or the Democratic Republic of Korea who gains control? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So does the does the current Korea collapse or uh, does it become something that gives the United States more influence or is it something that gives China an edge? And you have to think that some kind of sudden military intervention would would pretty much it would certainly result in the deaths of millions on the ROK side just because the DPRK is so ready to attack. They've been planning for some kind of invasion or aggression for years, decades. And listeners, the cynics among us would say that uh, an invasion or liberation has not occurred yet uh, because the DPRK doesn't have a valuable resource like oil or something. That's why it's not officially a protectorate of China yet. Uh, but it does have mineral resources, uh, metal resources. So we'll see how that goes. We also know that a CIA style people's revolution or regime change at China's doorstep would be an act of clear war. And that's probably one of the reasons it hasn't happened yet. Uh, there are spies uh, from China active in North Korea and there are North Korean spies in China and South Korea. But for now, there's not a compelling reason uh, for the countries involved to change the status quo immediately, maybe slowly over time, but not immediately. So what do you guys think about all this stuff? Uh, what's your opinion? We, I don't know. This is one of those subjects that racks my brain because it's very tough to digest all of these things like the human rights abuses that we talked about and also the rock and hard place between changing something and then not making things worse uh, from a global perspective. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. So write to us. Go to Twitter. We're at Conspiracy Stuff there. Find us on Facebook. We're Conspiracy Stuff there. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com stuff they don't want you to know is a production of iheartradio
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.